Look at these. Uh, we have one week from today, uh, and you know we don't, we will not be open next Wednesday night because of um, the worship of the devil. <laughs> um, <clears throat> actually, yeah, um, I used to. Well, never mind. But you, you have a week to get these in, and if you need one, if you need to do it tonight. I've got cards up here that you can use. The other day, um, I got this um, message from Sam Brummett, who is sitting right back there, but he uh, was all excited because um, uh, he spied a celebrity back on the ball fields for a football game. And he was so excited that this celebrity had showed up, that he took a picture and he sent it to me. And um, I wrote him back and I said, who is that? And, and he was just horribly offended because um, it was the king, Jerry Lawler. Now, you have to be a redneck to know um, even who Jerry Lawler is. But to think he's a celebrity, then, I mean, you have to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's the picture. <laughs> well, I say all that to say we have a real celebrity among us tonight. Not one of those, um, one of those WWFL or uh, whatever it was. Um, and it's a, it's a man that we have uh, had a relationship with for probably 20 years, a man who uh, leads a ministry in India. Uh, it's called Native, and I don't know exactly what Native stands for. I just know that the V and the E on the end stand for Village Evangelism. So uh, uh, he trains pastors and ships them into these, these villages in India all over the country. And that's where I go a couple of times, well, every other year or so to uh, teach Reformed theology and the solas, et cetera. And he's back here, and it's Edgar Sathaluri. Now, there's a celebrity, Sam, right there. <clears throat> it's good to have you with us, Edgar. Many, some of you have been to India, and you, I'm sure you want to say hello to Edgar. Um, how many of you know what the Babylon Bee is? Um, just a couple of you are twisted and perverted. Um, <laughs> the Babylon Bee is this thing that tries to make fun of, of stuff in the Christian church. There's, there's been several of those around. Uh, the Wittenberg Door, do y'all, did anybody remember the Wittenberg Door? I, I think it's still around, but the one that seems to be uh, the, the, the one big in the news today is the, the Babylon Bee. And so they had a little thing, I guess it was yesterday, um, and they are—they are—they have their own new set of the five solas, and they've summarized them in the one. And and the sola is sola fields, F E E L S, um, by fields alone. Um, and he, he, they're quoted as one's feeling, um, one's feelings are the supreme authority in. All matters of theology and practice. <laughs> now, I, I assume that that's a spoof. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that it's a spoof. That um, that really you would never be guided by such a principle. That uh, our feelings are the supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice, um, called sola fields. But years ago. Um, um, my buddy R.C. Sproul made a statement that I still remember, and he said that the number one problem in the church today is what he called sensuality. 
And it wasn't that, you know, everybody was running around on their husbands or wives. It was that, they, that the church depended upon their feelings. It was their feelings that led them. And he, he saw that, uh, gosh, 25 years ago as the number one uh, issue in the church. I say that to say this, guys. Um, in the Apostles' Creed, you, you, will, you will not get any kind of um, attempt to manufacture a feeling. It is simply designed to be a succinct and brief statement of, um, of the doctrines that are essential to one's uh, Christian position. Uh, I'm, that's it. Uh, it leads me to say that we're at this part in the um, Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's what we did last week. And then we come to what may be the apex of the... Um, of the Apostles' Creed, um, and again, no hint of anything sensual about it, but it is this statement. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Guys, um, the sufferings of Jesus Christ is at the core is at the heart of classical Christianity. What's called the passion of Christ. We're going to turn to that term in just a minute, but, um, you know, probably the most, well, no, I guess there's two, but both of them done by Michelangelo, but maybe you've seen, uh, Michelangelo worked far, primarily in Florence, Italy, but this one, the, the Pieta, have you ever seen the Pieta in the in the uh, St. Peter's Basilica? I mean, it's, uh, by the way, back in 1972, this deranged man broke in and tried to hammer it up with a hammer. Remember all that? And they put it together, and now they've got it in this encasing that you can't hammer it anymore. Um, but the Pieta, by the way, if you're in cathedrals in Europe, you're going to see not, not the, the sculpture. The, the Pieta is a sculpture. But you're going to see paintings galore. Um, of this same moment or setting or scene or whatever. The Pieta um, is a sculpture of Mary holding the dead body of Christ. By the way, the, the Latin word Pieta means pity. But Michelangelo was was... Uh, commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to uh, put something that could go in uh, um, a cathedral that was the summation of the Christian's message. And it was the sufferings, the dead body. I mean, if you've ever seen the thing, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's um, all of the veins and all of the, it, it could not be a better piece of rock representing a corpse. But as you go around the cathedrals in Rome, what you're going to see is painting after painting, not, not by Michael, by lots of different artists, of that same 
thing. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the sufferings of Jesus Christ are the very heartbeat of Christianity and Christianity's message. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, it's interesting to me, uh, maybe not to you, but uh, um, that of all the enemies that Jesus had, like Caiaphas or Herod, the only enemy of Christ that gets named in the Apostles' Creed is the uh, Pontius Pilate. But, I mean, he is immortalized by the the, uh, Apostles' Creed because his name is, is there. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. But l- l- let, me, let, me, let me show you this, because uh, I think this is intriguing. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The Apostles' Creed skips from his birth to the Pieta. <laughs> it, it skips from his birth to his sufferings. Everything in the middle there, everything... Um, is left out of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, that is called some uh, uh, dialogue and debate and discussion. What a minute, what am I doing? Are, are they saying that that's not important? Of course they're not. It's trying to be a brief, succinct statement. And, and really, uh, you've got to commend them to, for making it as brief as, they, as it is. But that gap is something that I, I, I want to, to fill in for you tonight. But it's not in the Apostles' Creed. But I want to make sure that you don't somehow devalue uh, everything that was in between his conception and the pieta and his sufferings. Okay, because that's what the Apostles' Creed does. Uh, it was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, it was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered. So we we skip from the birth to the suffering. Now, gang, um, there's there's lots of attempts in theology to to help us um, dialogue accurately about the message that Christianity has. And when it comes to the redemptive purposes of Jesus Christ, there's a couple of ways that theology has grouped it. One of the ways that it's done that is done uh, with two words, his um, active obedience and his passive obedience obedience okay so the whole of his life everything about him is summarized under these two headings his active obedience obedience and his passive obedience now um this is somewhat of an unfortunate word i think because the passive obedience of jesus christ refers to the pieta the sufferings this is left out now guys um Don't let me confuse you, but I'm going to try to. (laughs) But don't let me. Um, How is a man saved? Don't answer. Uh, You want to say uh, immediately, by the death of Jesus Christ. And there's truth in that response. But that's wrong. You are not saved by the death of Jesus Christ. You are saved by the life of Jesus Christ. Gang, the demands of God that were insisted upon in the garden, he didn't change those. 
the demands of God, of, of perfect obedience, that, that standard didn't get lowered because of, well, you know, sins, but I better, I better go back to the drawing board. No. Those standards are still the same. It's just that you don't perform them. But the standard still had to be met. A standard of perfect obedience. There has to be a righteousness that is imputed to you, that you get credit for. Because of this, there is. <clears throat> um, that's his active obedience that never gets mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. We jump from his birth to his death. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is the righteousness that gets imputed to you. His active obedience. All of it. When he leaves his home in glory and takes up residence in the womb of a virgin and, and from the, all that boyhood that we get one little glimpse of in uh, Luke 3 or Luke 2, I think. No, Luke 3, I think. Um, him in the temple and then he immediately at age 30. and All of that, folks, is essential stuff. Because somebody has to obey the law and obey it perfectly. And he did. And that's, that's how you're saved. This, this active obedience of Jesus Christ gets imputed to you. You get credit for this. Now, so um, how was a man saved? By faith? No, 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 no. Not by faith. He's saved by works. But they're just not his works. They're just not your works. But his works get imputed to you because the standard of God is still the same. That's his active obedience. Now, the passive obedience is everything that's performed um, through his betrayal, arrest, and sufferings on the cross. The reason I say this is unfortunate is because there's nothing passive about it. But it seems that this word is used because of its relationship, or it has the same Latin root as the word passion. I think that's why. I don't know how else to understand that word, but that's the two words that are used to describe the, the life of Christ. Under those two headings, there's a couple of more that I want to show you in a minute too, but um, th this is often used in theological circles. His active obedience and his passive obedience. So what's important about that? Well, not only did there have to be a perfect righteousness provided, there's still a problem. There's this active involvement of disobedience on our parts. So that has to be paid for. So how does that get paid for? How could you ever call that passive? But, but they do, and I don't know why. But, um, so sin gets paid for through his passive obedience. But this is what gets applied to you that's not mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. This is, but that's not. And this is pretty doggone important. That you, that you understand that um, uh, the life of Jesus Christ, folks, is just as important as his death. 
The active obedience is just as important as what was accomplished at Calvary. Calvary pays for sin. Um, 33 years of living perfectly is the righteousness that is now credited to those who embrace him in faith. Now, um, okay, so that's what you're, you see um, uh, it, 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 the, the statement or the, the clause is, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. Now, gang, um, there were all kinds of methods available to kill Jesus Christ. Um, but he had to be crucified. They could have killed him in a lot of ways, but no other method was allowable. He had to be crucified. Why is that? Well, I think you know the answer. It's because of Old Testament prediction about hanging on a tree and, and, and all that business. There was, he had to be cut off. He had to be cursed. It, it, uh, and the crucifixion couldn't take place inside the city gates. It had to be outside the city gates because he was going to be the scapegoat that was, <coughs> that was banished uh, from, the, from the contact with living souls. He was going to be thrust away. Everybody's going to turn their back on him and forget him, including his father. So though, though they could have killed him another way, it was impossible to do so because God is in charge of the events, but because the cross was, or crucifixion was that which the, um, the Old Testament predicted. Now, um, what I just said is far more important than I think you know. Um, it's what the Old Testament predicted. Folks, do you know the story in, um, in Luke 24 about the, the walk to Emmaus? Many of you know that. You've been on this Maeus thing that's around. But uh, if, if you've got a Bible, um, you might want to take a look at this because this is really an important, I, I think it's an, really an important point. Um, you know, he's walking, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's just been crucified and these guys are in sorrow and they, they're headed back to, they're on their way to Emmaus and, and uh, Jesus joins them and he walks down the road and they don't know who he is and... Um, uh, verse 44, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everyone written, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. One of those being, it's got to be a cross. And then look at verse 45. This is what I wanted you to see. Um, well, there's two places I want you to see it. It's in, um, uh, look at verse 27 and then verse 45. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now look at 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, it's mentioned right above that in verse 44. The law of Moses, which is the first five books, the Torah, and then the prophets, which is considered all the historical books and the prophets, and the Psalms. In fact, in essence, with those three words, he summarized the old the whole Old Testament. Now, here, here's the point. You've got to see that Jesus locates the source of the interpretive content for understanding the cross in the Old Testament. To understand what takes place in Calvary, 
He points them to the Old Testament. If you want to understand what took place, then go understand it in its interpretive center. Where? Romans. No. Romans wasn't written. The interpretive center of everything that just would happen in the sufferings is found in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Old Testament. Now, guys, one of the reasons that I, that I raise that point is because um, I, I, <clears throat> I apologize to you if, I mean, I, I don't take joy in, in, um, in these things. I mean, I don't, I don't take joy in, in um, uh, exposing error. If, but ladies and gentlemen, uh, I said Monday, Sunday morning that I, I think the church is on the precipice of capitulating to a culture. Well, part of the problem is presented to us by the church. For example... Folks, I bet you every person in this room in some way has benefited from the preaching ministry of Charles Stanley in Atlanta. Fine brother, fine man. You know, he had a marital issue years ago, you may recall. Um, And over that marital issue, he and his son split. Did did y'all know that? I mean, uh, the son went out and started his own place in Atlanta. His name is Andy Stanley. And he has started, I mean, it's, it's a mega big thing. I mean, um, big, 10,000 or something, you know, it's big. But just recently, in the last, um, I don't know, 90 days or 120 days or something, Andy Stanley went out of his way, and I'm going to quote him, at least a, a, a phrase. Um, he makes the point, and it is telling you, and here's his word, to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. How many of you saw that? I mean, uh, uh, yeah, okay, well, I, I just wanted you to know I didn't make that up. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Now, guys, what did I just say? I said that Jesus in Luke chapter 24 is walking down the road to Emmaus and he's trying to explain things about what just happened at Calvary and where does he go to to give them a sense of interpretation about what took place at Calvary. He goes to the thing over which I'm supposed to unhitch myself. Now, so I'm not supposed to say anything about that. I've got to unhitch yourself. God forbid that you should do that. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, there is much of the New Testament that you'll never get unless you go to that interpretive center. I'll I'll give you one example. The book of Hebrews. Don't try to understand the book of Hebrews apart from the Old Testament. You'll never get it. But Jesus is explaining himself and what he just did to those two guys on the road to Emmaus. And he uses the Old Testament to do it. And now I'm told to unhitch myself from the Old Testament. Mamma mia. Guys, I don't think you can understand this apart from the Old Testament. 
Because the, the requirement for man to be reconciled to God is perfect obedience. I didn't give the perfect obedience. And so who did? Or did God change the standard? They didn't change the standard, so who did? Well, it was Christ in the act of obedience. <clears throat> Those things, and to, to see Jesus explain himself in terms of the law of Moses? You know, I said it's Sunday. Romans 1 opens up with that verses 1 and 2 about the gospel beforehand being presented to you. Where? In the prophets. Which prophets? Old Testament prophets. But God's people are told by a very influential evangelical voice to unhitch themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, that is classic New Orthodoxy. I had um, a meal with a guy in Atlanta when I was at the General Assembly in June, and he's a, he's a dear man. He's done a great job in Atlanta, and he is a good friend of Andy's. And, um, and my friend said to me, Andy is a neo-Orthodox, and he doesn't know it. But when you tell people to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, I believe that you have harmed them. And, and I have to say something about it. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it helps you to tell you to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. I think it harms you. And, and um, I, I will say it was done in the name of um, broader strokes of grace that are going to include every whatever. And, and, and I, I, I want to try and celebrate some of that. But I'm not going to celebrate a grace that unhitches itself from the Old Testament. My Savior didn't. Um, uh, guys, um, the whole work of Christ, the whole work of Christ in his sufferings. Um, when the interpretation is drawn from the Old Testament, as it rightly should be, is summarized under two, two more words that come from the Old Testament. Substitution... And satisfaction. Gang, um, who was it? I think it was Karl Barth. Said that the whole New Testament can be understood in terms of one Greek preposition. Uh, that one. Pair that the whole of the, the, the work of Jesus Christ can be summarized and understood with that one Greek word, who pair. Let me show it to you. It's found all over the New Testament, but the one great place is Galatians 3 13. Christ redeemed us from the law, from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse. Here it is for us. 
The word translated for is the word huper. He redeemed us from the curse of the law um, by becoming a curse for us. Substitution. Gang, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, what was it? Well, you know, I just, um, I just uh, stole my neighbor's truck. Well, you're going to have to uh, bring a uh, lamb up to the temple. We're going to have to slaughter it. Because forgiveness on your, for you is going to be, um, uh, your sin is going to be placed on the head of the substitute. What was that? Oh, it was a goat. That whole idea of substitution, where, does it, where, where is it rooted? It's rooted in the Old Testament. Um, the, um, the lamb without blemish. The scapegoat. Where does all that stuff come from? The Old Testament. And it's through all of that that you're supposed to be getting the idea, oh, God is going to save on the basis of the merits of a substitute. He died for us or in our place. Substitution. Gang, this idea gets mentioned in the New Testament, but the whole foundation for it is laid in the Old Testament. Something I'm supposed to unhitch myself from. Um, the Day of Atonement, um, once a year, high priest puts on his all his garb, he goes into the holiest of holies, you know, and, and he do that all that stuff, and he comes out, lets the scapegoat go, uh, the scapegoat go, and then he communicates to the people, the law has been satisfied. How? Oh, that was through the shedding of blood of a substitute. Gang, that whole sacrificial system is designed to help you understand the work of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't, don't rob yourself of that. Don't, don't unhit yourself from that. Immerse yourself in that. Very frankly, guys, um, it was blood. And by the way, this is, I, I always thought this was an interesting argument. Okay, why did Jesus have to die? You know, I mean, if it was blood that was necessary, why didn't they just prick his finger? You know, that had produced blood. But the point is not just blood, folks. It's the extraction of blood that leads to death of the substitute that ultimately satisfies the standards that God has set. So squeeze all the blood out of that pinky finger you want. That's not the point. The point is that the blood signifies the death of the substitute that satisfies the demands of a holy God. All of that. All of that is derived. And by the way, folks, when the um, Apostles' Creed was written, um, I don't know, in, in, in its original form, maybe in the second century, they didn't have a whole lot of access to the New Testament. But they had a lot of access to the Old. 
They formulated these things in the main. Based on understanding of the Old Testament. <laughs> Don't unhitch yourself. It'll hurt you. Let's quit. Our Father, would you um, remind your people that the, at the heart and center of the gospel, the heart and the center of Christianity is a message about the sufferings of Christ. The, uh, the substitutionary sufferings of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that the righteousness that he earned by living perfectly now becomes mine. And the reason that we are so safe eternally is not because we've believed good enough or we've repented good enough. We haven't. What we've done is laid hold of the finished work of the Paschal Lamb. Uh, we, we glory in Him and in none other. Help us to grasp more and more the profundity of what He accomplished on our behalf. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and uh, let's eat some dessert. Don't forget to vote uh, or to nominate. <clears throat>